19-year-old Nell Cropsey disappeared from her Elizabeth City, North Carolina home on November 20th, 1901. Just over a month later, her body was discovered floating in the Pasquotank River. Nell's boyfriend was the first and only suspect in her disappearance and death. He faced two trials that lacked any physical evidence linking him to the crime and maintained until his death he had nothing to do with Nell's murder. Of all the people who were in the Cropsey home the night Nell disappeared, three would take their own life following her mysterious death. Others connected to Nell and the man accused of killing her met tragic ends. You can't help but wonder, did they know something about Nell's death? Some secret they dared not reveal? Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the murder of Nell Cropsey. Elizabeth City, North Carolina is situated in the northeastern corner of the state on the Pasquotank River. The city's just west of the Outer Banks. Known as the Harbor of Hospitality, Elizabeth City was once a major seaport where ships carried goods to and from the New World. In early 1898, a merchant and lawyer from Brooklyn, William Cropsey, purchased a 65-acre plantation and Victorian mansion known as Seven Pines. The home at 1109 Riverside Drive was situated on the banks of the Pasquotank River. By April, Cropsey had moved his family, his wife Mary Louise, and their nine children to Elizabeth City. William was named Pasquotank County Justice, and the Cropsies set about settling into their new life in the South. Seven Pines was always abuzz with activity and visitors. Of the Cropsies' nine children, Nell and her older sister, Ollie, seemed to be the closest. The 16-year-old, 5'2", dark-haired, dark-eyed Nell and her 19-year-old, blue-eyed, fair-haired sister, Ollie, were beautiful young women who captivated the attention of men in Elizabeth City. Two months after the Cropsies moved into Seven Pines, they met 23-year-old Jim Wilcox, the son of the local sheriff. He visited the house to introduce himself, and as Ollie said, paid particular attention to her sister, Nell. Jim was known around Elizabeth City as a different sort of guy. He wasn't disliked. He was just considered by some folks to be a little odd. Jim was a good-looking man, and Nell felt drawn to him. The two hit it off and began dating with Jim visiting Seven Pines every Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday to spend time with Nell and the whole family. Jim Wilcox wooed Nell with flowers, gifts of silver dishes, and a gold ring on her birthday the following July. By fall 1901, Nell and Jim had been dating for over two years, and the now 19-year-old Nell wanted a commitment of some kind but Jim was struggling to make his way. He was working in a local mill and trying to study law by correspondence school. Jim made it clear 
he didn't plan to propose anytime soon. Nell wanted marriage and a future. She cared for Jim, but one night as she and Jim argued over the state of their relationship, he became so angry, he grabbed his hat and stormed out of Seven Pines. Nell confided to her mother and her sister Ollie that she was concerned about Jim's quick temper when they would fight. In September, Nell told Jim if nothing was going to change, it was best to take a break or just move on. As the weeks passed, Nell stopped talking to Jim. She moved on with her life, joined a local church, spent a lot of time there with other young people, including her cousin Carrie, who was visiting from New York. Nell was excited about the weeks to come, including a planned trip to New York in November with Carrie. In early November, Jim tried to reconnect. He knew and was liked by all the Cropsies, so he started visiting Seven Pines again, but those visits were often awkward and uncomfortable because Nell barely spoke to him. On the night of November 20th, 1901, Jim Wilcox visited Seven Pines. He spent hours there, along with Ollie's boyfriend, Roy Crawford. There was a lot of music that night because Nell loved her music. Jim sat in a rocker, barely spoke a word as Roy and Ollie danced, and Jim and Ollie were taken aback when, at one point in the night, Roy reached for Nell's cheek and said to her, you're looking mighty sweet tonight, Nell. An odd thing for your sister's boyfriend to do, especially when there's already a lot of tension in the room. Around 11 p.m., Jim pulled out his watch, said his mom would want him home soon. He moved towards Nell, asked if she would join him on the porch. Nell didn't say a word. She looked back at Ollie, then looked at Jim, and just moved towards the door and walked outside with Jim Wilcox. Ollie would later say she assumed Nell and Jim went to that porch to make up, or at the very least, make peace before Nell was to head to New York days later. She never imagined when Nell walked out on that porch with Jim, it would be the last time she saw her sister alive. Around 11.30, Ollie told Roy she was tired and it was time for him to go home. She walked into the door, retired to the room she shared with Nell, and it was then she noticed Nell wasn't in the room. She wasn't in her bed. When the clock struck midnight, still no Nell. Around 12.30, Ollie was frightened by a loud bang that sounded like it came from the back of the house. Soon after, she heard dogs barking and said she heard what she thought sounded like someone yelling for Papa to get a gun, that someone was trying to take the pigs. Within minutes, the whole family had run downstairs to see what all the commotion was about. William Cropsey, gun in hand, noticed the back screen was broken. And when Ollie told them Nell hadn't come to bed, the Cropsies began searching the house and the grounds surrounding Seven Pines. When their search came up empty, Mary Cropsey told her husband she was afraid something horrible had happened to Nell. 
William told his wife not to worry, that Nell and Jim had probably done something foolish, like running off and eloping, and he promised he would find them. Around 1 a.m., William went to the home of Sheriff Wilcox, and when he learned Jim was home, he told the sheriff he needed to talk to his son to find out where Nell was. For some reason, Jim Wilcox refused to come downstairs and talk to Mr. Cropsey. This set William off. He was angry and worried about his daughter. So at 2 a.m., he knocked on the door of the chief of police and demanded help. William Cropsey was a respected judge, and the chief said he would do everything in his power to help, which included sending officers to the Wilcox home to forcibly remove Jim and take him to the Cropsey home, where he was questioned for two hours. Authorities, along with Nell's parents and her sister Ollie, begged Jim to tell them where Nell was. He remained silent until Nell's mom, Mary, put her hand on his arm and calmly said, Jim, for my sake and for your mother's sake, tell me where Nell is. Jim finally spoke and told Mary he could not say where Nell was. He told her he left Nell on the porch hours earlier and he said he would swear on a Bible that he didn't know where she was. The last time he saw her, she was standing on the porch crying as he walked away. As word of Nell Cropsey's disappearance spread through Elizabeth City, so did the rumors as to what could have happened to her. One rumor was that Nell was abducted for ransom due to her father's wealth. William Cropsey stated that if that was the case, he would give his last cent to get his daughter back. But a ransom demand never came. What followed would be weeks of desperate searches in an effort to find any sign of Nell. The night she disappeared, Sheriff Wilcox brought in bloodhounds that followed her scent to a boathouse on the Pasquotank River. From there, the search for Nell focused on the water, an expensive undertaking that the Cropsies helped pay for, including her uncle Andrew, who sent money from Brooklyn to cover the cost of hiring a submarine light to help police in their search of the Pasquotank. The river was dragged several times, a diver was brought in, searchers dropped dynamite in the water in an effort to possibly dislodge a body, but the search revealed nothing. As days turned into weeks with no sign of Nell, William and Mary Cropsey tried to hold out hope that their daughter was alive. A telegram William sent to his brother Andrew in New York makes you wonder if William worried Sheriff Wilcox was hiding something to protect his son. All the detectives in Pasquotank County and the neighboring counties were searching for Nell, but William Cropsey requested Andrew look into the cost of hiring a detective from New York to travel to North Carolina and undertake an independent investigation. As authorities continued their search for Nell in Elizabeth City, the mystery of what happened to her captivated the entire country, and her story was featured in the international press as well. The obsession with the Nell Cropsey mystery led to strange reported sightings 
with people saying they had seen Nell in carriages and on trains in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. Police followed every lead and found the sightings to be false reports. The Cropsies received many cards and letters from people who wanted to send along their best wishes and prayers for Nell's safe return. But one chilling letter sent to the Cropsies allegedly revealed where her body could be found. The letter arrived at Seven Pines three weeks after Nell disappeared. Postmarked from New York, it included a detailed description of how Nell met her end. The letter writer said Nell had accidentally interrupted a vagrant attempting to steal a pig from Cropsey's farm. The man was said to have hit Nell. She was unconscious, and he dumped her body in the Pasquotank River. The Cropsies were understandably horrified when they read that letter and saw that the writer included a diagram with an X marking the spot where Nell's body would be found. The letter was handed over to authorities who said it should be ignored because the Pasquotank had been searched and there was no sign of Nell where the letter writer said she would be. As the Cropsies waited day in and day out for any word of Nell, the town continued to work together to search for her. But there was a growing public sentiment that Nell's former beau, Jim Wilcox, was behind her disappearance. There was his strange behavior the night she went missing, and the fact that Jim never participated in a single search for her. He never explained why, but there's a theory that his father, Sheriff Wilcox, may have advised him to stay away because the last thing Jim needed was to be the person who found Nell, dead or alive. Even if Jim had joined a search party, there's no guarantee he would have been welcomed. Rumors spread through town that Nell had been afraid of Jim and that short temper. Although Jim continued to say Nell was safe and sound when he left her on the porch at Seven Pines, authorities had no other suspects, no clues in Nell's disappearance. So they arrested Jim on suspicion of kidnapping. As Jim Wilcox sat in jail, the search for Nell continued, and the people of Elizabeth City were growing frustrated and angry. They swore Jim was guilty. The tension was high, and there were constant threats that Jim Wilcox would be lynched. That concern only grew after December 27th. That morning, C.A. Long was fishing with a friend when he noticed a body floating face down in the Pasquotank River. He later said that out of respect, he went to the Cropsey home to have Mr. Cropsey come down, identify Nell, before he went to get the doctor and the sheriff. The discovery of Nell's body in the Pasquotank seemed strange for a few reasons. First, that river had been searched, dragged several times with dynamite brought in, and had yielded no sign of a body. Second, 
The spot where Mr. Long found Nell Cropsey's body was near the X that had been marked as the location of Nell's body in the letter sent to the Cropsies. That X was 150 yards in front of the Cropsey home where Nell was found floating in four feet of water. She was found about 40 feet to the right of a direct line with seven pines. Now this, along with the condition of Nell's body, made people wonder if the killer had hidden Nell's remains somewhere, perhaps used ice and the benefit of the colder weather from November to December to preserve her remains until her body was dumped in the river around December 27th. That's because when Nell's body was recovered from the Pasqua tank, there was no visible decomposition. There was no denying this was Nell, who was said to have looked as hauntingly beautiful in death as in life. 19-year-old Nell Cropsey had been taken from her family. Her body found under suspicious circumstances over a month after she disappeared, and in a strange turn, her autopsy would be another undignified chapter in Nell's story. Dr. Isaiah Fearing, the Pasquotank County coroner, called for an immediate coroner's inquest within an hour of the discovery of Nell's body. That autopsy took place in a boathouse on William Cropsey's property. This was Dr. Fearing's first autopsy since being named coroner, so he called in Dr. Julian Wood, the county health officer, to assist him with the procedure, and Oscar McMullen to dictate notes to a clerk. As the doctors worked in the outbuilding that lacked the sterile conditions you'd expect of an autopsy, there was concern about the crowd outside. Word spread about Nell being found, and thousands of people had gathered near the river and watched as the police chief and a few officers carefully moved Nell from the riverside to that boathouse. Many wanted to see what the doctors were doing, and tried to peek in as police tried to push them back. All the while, there was poor Nell with no dignity in death. Nell's autopsy noted the only sign of decomposition was in her brain because it was wintertime, very cold, and her body appeared in a perfect state of preservation. Dr. Fearing noted Nell was a virgin had a small amount of undigested food in her stomach, and there was a roundish contusion on her left temple. He believed that contusion had been the result of a heavy blow due to the amount of swelling and bruising on her head. Dr. Fearing noted the blow likely rendered her unconscious and there was no water in her lungs, which meant Nell Cropsey had not drowned. She was already dead when someone dumped her body in the Pasqua tank. Within two days of Nell's discovery and autopsy, Elizabeth City said goodbye to lovely Nell Cropsey. Funeral services were held at the Episcopal Church with the building packed from the pulpit to the stone steps and beyond, and people crowded the streets to pay their respects. Following the service, Nell's coffin was placed in a white pine crate 
and transported to the local train station for the journey to her final resting place in the Cropsey family plot in Brooklyn. At the train station, Nell's uncle Andrew, the lawyer from Brooklyn, served as the family spokesperson and told the press they believed Jim Wilcox killed Nell. When pressed as to how and why, Andrew said he didn't know, but he was certain Jim had tried to pressure Nell into taking him back, and when she stood up to him, his temper overtook him, and in anger, he had killed Nell. Andrew said he did not believe Jim meant to kill Nell, and it was his belief Jim hadn't acted alone. Andrew said someone helped him hide Nell's remains for weeks and eventually dumped her body in the Pasquotank River. Jim Wilcox was the only suspect in Nell's disappearance and death, and it seems police never looked at anyone else. That's despite the odd behavior of the other man who was at the Cropsey home the night Nell went missing, Roy Crawford. Nell's sister Ollie had mentioned Roy's odd and intimate encounter with Nell that night, touching her face and calling her sweet, attention Nell did not appreciate. Roy was never called to account for his whereabouts in the hours after he left Seven Pines, which seemed just as strange as Jim Wilcox not being able to or willing to account for his. Investigators considered Jim's lack of cooperation, his quick temper, and the autopsy that showed blunt force had led to Nell's death, and they saw an open and shut case. Jim Wilcox reacted in anger when Nell rejected him, and he killed her. As the state worked to make their case against Jim with circumstantial evidence, there was an odd group formed to help police gather evidence against him. They called themselves the Citizens Committee. They spoke to potential witnesses, and some would later argue worked to ensure whoever sat on the jury when Jim went to trial would find him guilty. Jim asked his lawyer, Edwin Adlett, to waive his right to a preliminary hearing and was indicted for Nell's murder in March 1902. His trial began in Elizabeth City on March 14th. And as you can imagine, it was heated and contentious from day one. George Ward presented the state's case against Jim and laid it out like this. Jim fell out with Nell. He was the last person to see her alive. And his conduct after she disappeared made it clear he didn't care for Nell and had been the one to strike the blow that caused her death. Aidlet countered saying the circumstantial evidence wasn't sufficient to convict. There was no physical evidence linking Jim to a crime. Furthermore, a man's emotion or lack of it doesn't mean he's guilty. Aidlet also argued Jim had been tried and convicted by the public before he was indicted by the court. And the only reason he was on trial was because powerful people with money and influence wanted him there. Someone was hiding the truth of Nell's death, and someone else was responsible for this tragedy. Aidlet summed up his defense by telling the jury that if Nell Cropsey's spirit could look down, she would not have them make a mistake and hang an innocent man. 
The jury deliberated the case for 30 hours. In the end, Jim Wilcox was found to be guilty of murder in the first degree and sentenced to death. Adlet immediately appealed the verdict on the grounds Jim didn't get a fair trial. It turns out some of the jurors had been threatened by members of the public. There had been demonstrations in the courtroom during Jim's trial and many other attempts to intimidate the jury. Plus, there was the lack of physical evidence presented at trial. In October 1902, the Supreme Court of North Carolina granted Jim Wilcox a new trial. The defense immediately filed a change of venue for Jim's second trial, which took place in Perquimans County in January 1903. When the verdict was handed down on January 21st, Jim Wilcox was found guilty of murder in the second degree and sentenced to 30 years in central prison. As the years passed, there was a growing belief that Jim Wilcox could have been innocent and imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. His attorney pursued the last legal avenue to free Jim, a pardon. And he had some unexpected support. Some residents of Elizabeth City had changed their minds about Jim's guilt and started a petition seeking pardon or parole for him and hundreds of people signed that petition. In 1918, North Carolina Governor Thomas Bickett reviewed Jim's case and agreed to meet with him at Central Prison. Following that meeting, Governor Bickett pardoned Jim. Much to the shock and dismay of Nell Cropsey's family, after serving half of his 30-year sentence, Jim Wilcox was released from prison on December 20th. 1918. Upon the announcement of Jim's pardon, the governor explained his decision, saying that of all the letters he received from people who supported Jim, the one that had carried the most weight was from Jim, who wrote the following to Governor Bickett. Were it my last words on this earth, I would still protest my innocence and would not be going before my maker with a lie on my lips. I come and ask you for mercy, and should you see fit to grant me a pardon, I can assure you, I will not cause you one regret for having done so. Throughout his trials, appeals, and prison sentences, Jim's family had stood by him, supported him in every way. When he left Central Prison in 1918, he returned home to Elizabeth City where he was met by his family and some loyal friends. But most of the town still believed Jim killed Nell, and they were upset he had come home. Reporters chased after Jim in an ongoing effort to get him to talk, to tell his side of the story. He had refused to meet with every reporter who requested an interview, all but one. W.O. Saunders. Back in 1915, Saunders, who was the editor of the Elizabeth City Independent, heard Jim had tuberculosis, was near death in the Central Prison Hospital. Saunders reached out, and Jim agreed to meet him, likely because Jim thought he was about to die. 
Saunders asked Jim if he had any idea what happened to Nell, and Jim replied, none in the world. Saunders would later say that Jim's response made him believe he was innocent, saying a guilty man who had been sitting in a prison cell for more than a decade would likely have come up with all manner of theories or explanations to clear his name. But saying you have no idea who could have done it? Well, as Saunders put it, one would think that a murderer protesting his innocence and hoping for pardon would have concocted all sorts of theories to square himself. Saunders' belief in Jim's innocence made him encourage Jim to tell his story, write down his truth. He told him he could help him write a book, but Jim said no. For years following Jim's pardon, the only reporter he talked to was Saunders. Each time they spoke, Saunders felt like he was getting closer to convincing Jim to work on that book. But any hope of answers was lost as Jim Wilcox spiraled into a cycle of despair and alcoholism. He became a recluse, but in 1934, the then 58-year-old Jim Wilcox reached out to Saunders, invited him to come see him in his room in the back of a local garage. Days later, Jim attended a church service. He entered the church, sat in a pew, and the couple next to him, upon recognizing him, stood up and moved to another pew. Two days later, Jim Wilcox lay down on the cot in his run-down rented room and shot and killed himself. Saunders covered the death of Jim in The Independent and revealed he had been trying to get Jim to write that book for years. He also revealed Jim had made one compelling statement to a friend, telling that man that Nell's father had knowledge of the killer and could have revealed the killer, but chose not to. Saunders' final words about Jim Wilcox and the mystery of Nell's death revealed a source close to Jim learned he had started a few pages of his life story that could reveal the answers to much of the mystery surrounding Nell's disappearance and death. He claimed Wilcox stored the pages in a tin box buried on Frog Island, not far from Elizabeth City. Jim had allegedly told this friend that when Jim died, he had permission to retrieve the pages and publish them. After Jim's death, his friend searched high and low, but the pages were never found. Saunders' efforts to find answers in Nell's mystery would be cut short a few years after Wilcox died. He had been working as a freelance journalist and was on his way from Elizabeth City to Virginia when his car plunged off a highway into a canal, and he drowned. Tragedy after tragedy seemed to follow the death of Nell Cropsey. It was as if the people connected to the mystery were somehow cursed. A year after Jim's second trial, one of the jurors who had convicted him took their own life. Some of the doctors and attorneys associated with the case died sudden deaths. 
1906, papers falsely reported Nell's father, William, was dead. But he was alive and would live until 1938. And in 1908, Roy Crawford shot and killed himself. And a poignant reminder that for every murder, there's a ripple effect, a sea of victims who lose someone they love, many members of the Cropsey family who were at Seven Pines when Nell disappeared, found it hard to move forward after losing her. Nell's sister, Ollie, struggled after Nell's death and by 1903 had become a recluse. She never forgave herself for letting Nell go out on the porch with Jim Wilcox. She never married and would die alone in 1944 at the age of 59. In 1913, Nell's brother, William Jr., who had moved to Virginia with his wife and child, took his own life by drinking a bottle of carbolic acid. Rumors swirled in papers that perhaps William had known something about Nell's death that he could never reveal, something that drove him to that desperate act. His father, William, spoke up in his defense, saying it had nothing to do with Nell and everything to do with the relationship between William Jr. and his wife, who strained due to alcoholism and financial issues. It is hard to ignore that three of the people in the Cropsey home, the final night of Nell's life, later took their own life. And tragically, there will never be true justice for Nell because any hope for answers is long gone. With so many unsettling events around the Cropsey family, it's not surprising to learn Seven Pines, which still stands overlooking the Pasquotank River, is said to be a house full of restless spirits. Each person who has owned Seven Pines says there's something paranormal happening there. There have been reported sightings of a woman who looks like Nell standing at the foot of the bed in the room she shared with Ollie. Lights going on and off in the house with no explanation. And so many people who've taken a walk by Seven Pines say they look up and see Nell standing on the porch. Perhaps, like us, waiting for answers to a mystery that can never be solved. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. The theories as to what happened to Nell after she joined Jim Wilcox on the porch of Seven Pines continue to this day. Along with the theory that Jim did indeed kill Nell, there have been rumors that her father or some other family member mistook her for a thief on the grounds of Seven Pines the night they were looking for her and accidentally hit and killed her. Now that could explain why the Cropsies struggled so much after Nell's loss, but that could also be explained by the weight of the mystery, the media attention on all of them, and the unbearable weight of grief. 
If you'd like to see pictures of Nell and more about this episode, along with sources, check the show notes at southernmysteries.com. And if you like this independent podcast and want to hear more, you can help me create Southern Mysteries when you join me on Patreon, where you get to hear bonus Southern Mysteries shorts each month. It's my thanks to you for supporting the show. You can learn more and sign up today at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. And if you want to connect, head to southernmysteries.com where you'll find links to our social channels and learn more about supporting the show. And one big way you support Southern Mysteries is rating and reviewing the show where you're listening right now. If you've never done that before, it would help out in a big way because it helps with algorithms and helps people discover Southern Mysteries. And don't forget to, uh, to tap on that follow button where you're listening so you never miss a new episode. Thanks for doing those things to help support the show. And thanks so much for listening. Be another star